Shima Oliai, you just made this new 30 for 30 podcast series titled Pink Card, a truly multi-generational story about women and soccer in Iran. But before we dive into that, I think it might be helpful for you to just lay out for our listeners here what's been happening in Iran recently. On September 16th of this year, a young woman, she was visiting the capital. She normally lives in a village and two inches of her hair was showing from outside of her hijab. This is Masajina Amini. The morality police picked her up and they took her to a center to get re-educated in how to dress appropriately. And when her family came down to the capital, they delivered her body to the parents and she had she was no longer living. They had basically bludgeoned her body. They said that she had died of a heart attack or something. And basically they had murdered her. And I think what was expected is that Iranian people en masse would not rise up for an anonymous girl that was from a small village. Mm. Like they, that, that wouldn't be the uniting force for the whole country. And they were very wrong. <laughs> Just the sound of that mother grieving over her daughter, it, it, it ruins you. It just devastates you. From then on, everyone was in the streets. Now to the deadly protests in Iran tonight, spreading now to some 80 Iranian cities and around the globe, with all of it sparked by the death of a young woman in the custody of the morality police. That was all leading up to this World Cup. Right, the World Cup, the fact that the U.S. was playing Iran in this huge game became just the latest reason to think about the thousands upon thousands of protesters who have now been arrested, the hundreds of people also who have been killed in a fight for the basic human rights of the women of Iran. And the Iranian team, by the way, you know, we covered it on the show. They were seen refusing to sing their own national anthem in protest. The U.S. team scrubbed the logo of the Islamic Republic from its online depiction of the Iranian flag in a show of solidarity. But in Iran itself, it also sounds like soccer has played a really important role along these lines for decades. Soccer in Iran was a, was a way to connect as a national citizen. So being able to like enjoy soccer, to, to attend games, was a way to feel connected to your fellow citizens and to also have a sense of pride in your national identity. And so by taking away soccer from women, it took away that national identity. Now, because I had been reporting on soccer for three years and the, and the girls' stadium movement to get back into the stadiums they'd been banned from, mm. I knew as of March of this year when girls 
tried to get into a game um, in Mashhad. Basically, they were beaten and pepper sprayed. I knew what the what the tone of the country was behind the scenes, and then at at another game, um, they played this song "Hello Commander," which is basically about children singing that they will be martyrs for the regime, and all the, the thousands of people in the soccer stands all started booing. So you could hear both the resistance and the oppression at games all through 2022. You could see what was happening to the women and you could see the unified anger and discontent towards the regime. And Masa Amini was the final moment where everyone decided no more. When the United States needed to beat Iran to make the knockout stage of this World Cup, the story of the ongoing mass protests in Iran became a thing as American sports news was concerned. We covered it here extensively, how players on the Iranian national team were being punished for being sympathetic to women in their country, essentially, and how Iran's tangled history with America was now seeping into the soccer being played. But then America won, and Iran was sent home, and it felt like an even bigger story. The story of how specifically important soccer has been to this movement. A movement spanning generations of women in Iran was lost. So today, we ask Shima Oliayi, the creator and host and executive producer of the 30 for 30 podcast series, Pink Card, to tell us about that story and why it resonates right now more than ever. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Thursday, December 8th. This is ESPN Daily. Shima, I'm curious how Iranian you felt growing up because you, like me, are a first-generation American. You're a child of Iranian immigrants. You're in Reno, Nevada. Are you speaking the language? How would you describe your, your connectivity to the roots that your parents had to leave behind to come to this country? You know, even in Reno, there were several Iranian families, so we would see each other. And my parents actually met most of them at UNR, University of Nevada, Reno. They were all living in married student housing, these like really tiny apartments. Um, and so I grew up with other Iranian families around me. I was the only girl. All of them had boys my age. So I think that was also why I kind of was a tomboy growing up. We found old videos of my mom, one, training me in soccer, which she called football. <laughs> and there's actually a moment where I'm going like, football, you mean soccer? Because, you know, I'm like, I'm definitely an American kid. She does not care that I'm a kid. She is annihilating me in this one-on-one game. <laughs> she's just like, push me aside. Yeah, she's not, she's not grading on a curve, it sounds like. No, and I, I even called her later. I'm like, mom what the hell? Like, this is wrong. Like, what did you do? You know, she speaks to me in Farsi and I speak back to her in English. That was all through my childhood. I understood Farsi, but I spoke it less and less. And then it was just better to not be known as Iranian. What do you mean by that? The most I really saw my Iranian reflection mirrored back was in films that were not were not flattering. You know, I do my I remember my grandma came and visited me 
um, at some time in in the nineties, and we watched True Lies together. And I mm. I had watched it before. It was like a rerun on TV, and I'd watched it before, and I loved it. I was like, yes. yeah, I gotta I gotta say, I have only fondness for Arnold Schwarzenegger and his oeuvre, and now I'm slowly realizing that maybe I should have had a more complicated view of this. <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was watching and I only understood how bad it was when I was sitting next to my grandma and I got more and more and more and more embarrassed. And I was like, oh, they're talking about you because, you know, the women they would show and and the ways that the people were talking and I could see that she understood. And actually coming toward this podcast, one of the reasons I wanted to report this series out was my experience was that Iranian women are totally the leader. <laughs> like they they are totally the dominant force in any household. Mm. Like my grandma is so, my grandma who's watching this True Lies is pr- way scarier than Arnold Schwarzenegger. And every woman I met too that was Iranian, same thing. My mother totally ruled my dad. <laughs> you know, I thought the Middle East was like patriarchal culture, like Sure. On fleek, like 10, 10 times what you would normally see. And then in my household, I was like, oh my God, dad, get, like, become stronger. <laughs> so, so as a girl growing up in America, you had what sounds like a relatively typical first generation immigrant upbringing, it sounds like. But in Iran, the young girls growing up over there over the past four decades, they have grown up in a very different world, obviously. And this podcast series that you just made you chronicle a number of instances where soccer was actually instrumental in the fight over how to make that world. And this one match, this qualifying match from 1997 between Iran and Australia with the World Cup on the line, what made that match so pivotal? Yeah, so the country had just come back from an eight-year war with Iraq, and this is right after the revolution. So Everything is still, like, people are still reeling from the aftermath of both events. And the country's in a state of depression. And again, women have basically been redacted from public life. Mm. This is also the time where they fire the religious coach and then replace him with a foreigner who was, like, wearing a necktie, which was at the time seen as, like, so taboo. You were not supposed to embrace that kind of Western dress. And... Australia is annihilating Iran. It is so riveting and it is so insanely impossible what happens. But basically in the last like three, four minutes of play, two goals are scored by the Iran team. It's a total like miracle that happens on the field. And the entire Iranian nation is listening because they really want the team to make it into the World Cup. And when the Iran, in what can be just termed as an act of God, like, I don't know, an act of (laughs) something beyond the human realm, when they end up winning, it, it unleashes so much joy that all the rules... Are, are free to be broken. Yeah. That's when you see the women jumping yeah. on cars, dancing, everyone's throwing off their hijab. Like, people stop the car, start blasting music. You see, wow, this, like, really sad place I live that I didn't even know was this sad is now on fire. Like, just, like, full of joy. And it's this notion, right, that women are, are now out in public 
emoting, right? Celebrating, yes. dancing, doing doing these acts that are like prohibited, right? But because they've won, it, it feels like the floodgates can at least for a time here just open. Because they can't control it. When the when everyone is that united, who are the police officers going to arrest? Because everyone is doing it, you know? Right. That right. was the benefit of having that singular moment was everyone at the same time broke the law. And then the regime announced that they're going to helicopter the players in for a celebration at Azadi Stadium, the same stadium now that at that time for 18 years had been a place where no woman could enter. That day when they broadcast, like, please, we're going to have the the players come in. But women, you are not invited because they could see that the women were just excited as the men over this game. And and the women don't listen. (laughs) 5,000 of them storm the gates. They actually break down the gates alongside the men. They get into the stadium and then they rip off their headscarves. And no one says anything because... The win, the victory, the impossible victory becomes so much more important than the oppression. After the break, how the stadium itself becomes one of the most important figures in this entire story. Shopping for Mother's Day is usually a challenge because you people wait until the last minute. But Macy's Gift Finder makes it incredibly fast and easy to find the right gift just in time for Mother's Day. Whether you're shopping for your sister's first one or for your fashionista mom who likes to make a statement, Macy's Gift Finder has so many great gift ideas that you can easily pick out something special to celebrate with them both. You can shop by price anywhere from $25 and under to, say, $100 and below. You can also sort by category, like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Or even pre-wrapped gifts for grandma. Find top brands like Studio Pro Model Beats headphones, Polaroid cameras, and Samsung smart TVs. So, what are you waiting for? Mother's Day is May 12th, and it'll be here before you know it. Macy's has the perfect gift guide to make picking something for mom easy this year. Head to Macy's.com slash gift finder today. That's Macy's.com slash gift finder. I do want to just sort of establish that, you know, one of the central characters in this whole story is a place. It is architecture as much as it is uh, any one name or character. The national stadium that Iran built How would you begin to tell that story as to how that even came to be, the soccer stadium that is the locus of so many of these scenes? Yeah, so part of the country's modernization that was developing and growing throughout the 60s and the 70s was an idea of soccer as the national sport. And the Shah at the time, the last Shah, he wanted to build a stadium that could be a part of the global community, a part of the the Olympics and possibly a World Cup. And he builds this like majestic, you know, like a stadium called Audiomare Stadium with 120,000 seats. And it's supposed to be almost in his image, you know, lavish, imperial. Modern. Yes, modern. And intimidating too. You know, even the way they built the stadium 
the sound in the stands, the architectures built it so it would be amplified. So it would intimidate opposing teams. And they, they had a nickname for it called Bee Swarm. And when you hear the people shouting, it creates just a swarm of sound, which is terrifying to, to the visiting team. And so all of this was part of that stadium's creation, this kind of like deep thinking. The Shah's wife actually was an architecture student. So she was actually very much in, in support of creating the stadium as well. Yeah, and, and in terms of who was allowed there, speaking of his wife, yeah. this was, what were the rules? Everyone was allowed in. My mother has gone to games at Azadi Stadium. Her, her cousin was a, was a member of the national team. She's been there many times. But in the 70s, it was also used as a concert space. In 1975, this is four years before the country flips and before the Shah is forced to leave. Frank Sinatra comes <laughs> as a special guest of the Queen, and he sings. <laughs> he sings like ten songs. One of them is "The Lady Is a Tramp." <laughs> like it's just man. And like women, can you imagine women and men standing side by side in the same place that we are now seeing on TV? Yeah, I can't imagine it actually. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, and just like like cheering and shouting for Frank Sinatra, like and him, you know, just. He's amazing, but like it's amazing to watch him. I actually saw the video of him at the actual stadium. He's just in, it's, it's like he's in Detroit. Yeah, the point is that Old Blue Eyes is there acting as if this could be anywhere in America, basically. But to be clear, life under the Shah, while having some of the look, some of the feel, certainly of a modern democracy, was effectively still a dictatorship, right? And so how did the Iran under the Shah eventually sow the seeds for the Islamic Revolution led by Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979, which is, again, just four years after Sinatra? It's kind of this moment that lives as a nostalgic memory for us. Like, it was, like, so much better before the 79 revolution. But there was still abuse of power. And so by... 75, 76, 77, 78, all these young students are like seeking change. So basically inside and outside forces collide and Khomeini, who is exiled in Paris, who was known for hating on women's rights. Basically in the 60s, when they gave women the right to vote, he said that it was similar to prostitution. By the 70s, when he sees that the Shah is losing influence with the Western leaders and he sees that there is discontent, he starts changing his tone about women's rights. And so he just lies and he says, oh, yeah, I support women. You know, this is my my colloquial way of saying it. But he starts going back on the things he had said earlier. And so by the time he arrives in the country, people just believe his lies. At first, people have hope. Still, like, oh, we're going to get what we wanted. We're going to get a government that is not a dictatorship, that is not a, a force of oppression. And it's women that lose everything first. What was the first set of changes that, that made that obvious? They remove all women judges because women do not have the moral authority to judge. It's interesting because laws kind of feel hidden 
Like, you know, you hear that this is changing, but it's hard to see it automatically exert itself in your daily life. And this is why the headscarf and the, and the soccer stadiums become the big, the moments of big resistance is because it's mm. in your face. Yeah, what you've been describing so far is this population of women who had played a key role in overthrowing one oppressive regime only to find themselves facing another type of oppression from another regime, a new regime. And so as the ground is shifting underneath them like that, what did you learn from the people who personally experienced it? The women could not believe what was happening. They did not think this could ever happen to them. I actually interviewed a woman who said, yeah, we had just kicked out the Shah. If Khomeini is not who we think he is, we're going to kick him out too. Mm -hmm. We're not afraid of these guys. And then diabolically, the regime starts having their morality police looking at the shops in central Tehran and focusing on not women, but mannequins. What did they do? What did they want to do to the mannequins? Uh, the woman who recounts the story, Madame Giscars, in the, in the series, she says she was walking with her daughter and the morality police show up at a shopkeeper's window and start pointing to the mannequin. And I want to give you an image of what the mannequins look like. They don't look like what we see at like a Forever 21 today. These 70s mannequins had long caramel-colored hair. They had like full wigs. They had dark eyeliner, big eyelashes, eyes, red lipstick, rouge lipstick. They had colored nails. Mm. And so the morality police point to one of the mannequins and says, oh, she needs a hijab. Where's her hijab? So the shopkeeper goes and gets a scarf that's in the shop and just covers her hair to get this gun out of his face to appease the police. Then the next day, the morality police come back again. And then they point to the mannequin's fingernails. So then the shopkeepers, like, discolor the fingernails. Then they point to the mannequin's eyes the next day. Then the shopkeepers are erasing the eyes. You know, just basically erasing one lifelike feature after another on these inanimate objects. And Merengiz is like, was telling me that she was walking with her daughter and her daughter is laughing. They actually didn't take it seriously at all. And then eventually it gets to a point where the breasts are sliced from each mannequin. Only a wire coil is exposed to kind of show that there's some kind of feminine feature underneath the clothes. Basically the climax is the shopkeepers across the capital take the mannequins and behead all of them and replace the head with a cardboard triangle. Man. And then cover that with a scarf. And what happens in that time with the morality police, it just escalates to a point where you know what they will do to you if you do not listen. That obliteration, that erasure of humanity that you just described there is, is chilling. Honestly, and that is what's happening in the shops, in businesses around Iran. And how does that reach what's going on with the soccer matches and the stadium? So within that next year and a half, the laws start being enacted for 
the new uniform for all women. Um, by that time, like the terror and the understanding of how cruel and ruthless this, this regime is has become very clear. And women are all wearing this new uniform, the long black pants, long shirt, even the colors. Like you could not wear like a, a bright color. It was all black, dark gray or dark blue. And think mm. about it. You have to recast half of your population overnight. So clothing manufacturers are making this like coarse, almost like prison guard, coarse, heavy fabric because they've got to now force it onto all of these bodies. And this was not what was available in stores before that time. And the women now are dressing in this attire they would have thought was insane just a year and a half ago. These are women who had just known modernity, freedom. Yes, who were singing with Frank Sinatra. Right. Singing right. Lady is a Tramp in miniskirts, <laughs> like side by side with men and women at a concert and like shopping and enjoying, like full of laughter and joy. But the women show up in this new uniform that they were at one point horrified by and like just disgusted by. They show up to the National Soccer Stadium to watch a game. The stadium had not had a ban yet. And they're showing up in this ridiculous attire, thinking, okay, we are following the rules. We will stay in line. And they're told to go home. And then that is when they are told, this stadium is no longer a place that you are allowed to enter. And it has been renamed. It is no longer Adiyamir Stadium. It is now Azadi Stadium. For those who don't know, in Farsi, that means freedom. So that is what the women... It's all so poetically dystopian. And it's what, it's the word the women had chanted. Yes. For their rights, for the revolution. They just hijacked their word and said, okay, it's ours, goodbye. And Mm. there's also this feeling of censorship and surveillance um, that just starts to pervade the country. So you don't trust people. You don't know who's watching you. You don't know who's going to tell on you. You don't know when the morality police is going to attack you. And that's how they keep women down. Yeah. Until that 97 game. Right. The 97 game against Australia that we talked about before, where the women stormed the stadium afterwards to celebrate Iran making the World Cup. And that wound up being the spark, right? The spark for a protest movement that you report on called the White Scarves. And two of the women who started this movement, Nasreen and Sara, you interviewed them Tell me about who they are. So Nasreen, one of the earliest like fighters for women's rights, um, is a college student at that time watching the 97 game. Sara is a high school student. They meet up at this like secret group of girls who are in university and also including journalists and activists that are trying to like think about how they can fight the regime and take back their country. And so they just start like, organize it. There's like 11 of them. They all had a different realm of society they focused on. Nasreen and Sara focused on the stadium movement and on, on watching soccer games. And that's because of how impacted they were by that 97 game. And so those women kind of create the core of the soccer movement, the soccer, the, like the basically the stadium campaigns movement in Iran. 
And from then on, they start targeting these international games to get a lot of international press attention because reporters would always come and visit Azadi Stadium during those games. Um, they would bring posters saying, our share is half of freedom. Like, our share is half of Azadi, the stadium. We deserve, we deserve to be there. Half of the stadium is ours. Mm. And the guards would just rip up their posters. So when international media outlets would be there and they didn't understand Farsi or speak Farsi, they would observe the girls and not really understand what they were protesting or what was going on. Yeah. And they knew that they needed the photograph to kind of capture what they were angry about so it could get that message could get spread and people could find out what was actually happening. So one of the girls, Nasreen, comes up with this great idea that what is the one thing that a guard would never rip up? And it's our hijab. So they take these white scarves and they spray paint their message on their scarves. And so when they show up now, no one can remove their message Mm. and their photographs go viral and they start to really make an impact. Which, of course, then lands them with a lot of backlash. Coming up, how the women of Iran are continuing to evolve their tactics in their fight for change right now. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with the smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. So, Shima, as the women of Iran are struggling still to regain their rights, it does occur to me that FIFA itself does have a responsibility here, doesn't it? I mean, by their own rules, FIFA does not allow its member organizations to ban women from games. And yet, Iran is quite evidently still a member. So how does the regime keep getting around this? So the regime tells FIFA, women don't want to go to games. This is not in our culture. And then they even screenshot their website showing that women can purchase tickets. Like, so they have this like, they have this website like drop-down menu where you can buy tickets and it says, oh, tickets for women. But if you're in Iran and you go to the website, the link leads to nowhere. <laughs> it's a fake link. Oh, God. So they screenshot the screen saying, look, all women are, can go. They just don't want to go. You know, it's just this radical group of noisy girls that are just creating trouble. 
And so they send that to FIFA. FIFA shrugs their shoulders and goes, hey, okay. That seems like good enough for yeah, us. No, like ticketsforwomen.com seems real. Sure. <laughs> and they're like, we don't wanna, we don't wanna get involved in a country's culture. And of course, you know, each FIFA president, it's also the way that FIFA is structured. Each country gets its own vote. So think about how many dictatorships there are in the world <laughs> who are participating in soccer. Yeah, their base, the FIFA commissioner's base is literal dictators. They all have equal vote on who becomes the next president and who gets to renew his term. So it is not incentivized for a president of FIFA to do the right thing. And it's really disheartening because Sara, who over her years of activism gets championed by the Center of Human Rights in Iran, and they send her to Switzerland for like a FIFA gathering she says that, you know, she thought that if she was meeting with Swiss men, it would be so much better and that they would totally get it. Like, this is definitely against our statutes. Like, in FIFA's rules and regulations, it says there can be no discrimination based on gender. Yes. And she said that when she got there, she just said, Shima, I realized that it wasn't just the corrupt leaders. They all think we're a joke. Like, I was basically pat on the head and told, oh, you're a cute girl. You should be less noisy. And it was terrifying for her. It was a moment where she thought, oh, yes, someone's going to come save us. And she realized that, no, they're never going to do the right thing. These people do not care about human rights. In March of this year, March of 2022, women showed up to a game in Mashad, a Lebanon versus Iran game, and they had been able to get tickets and they are pepper sprayed and beaten. Mm. And it's covered, like people know it happened. And then the next week is the World Cup Congress, the FIFA World Cup Congress, and no one mentions it. They do a whole speech about how much Qatar has improved since they got this World Cup bid, how amazing this is. Like, look, they used to kill their migrant workers and now they're a little bit better. Like, that's literally... Yep. If you watch it, I was just shocked. And I had I was hoping they would say something about Iran. No one said anything. No, and by contrast, one of the most stunning acts of protest that you talk about is the story of this young woman named Zainab, who is, yes, a contemporary character. She is living here in the present. And she went to truly remarkable lengths just to be at a soccer game, physically present at a soccer game in Iran. How has she evolved the tactics, the tradition of how to protest? Yes. So Zainab, who is part of one of the leaders of this younger generation, she was a huge soccer fan. And her uncle felt so bad for her crying about not being able to attend the stadium that he takes her with him and she disguises herself as a boy. So she puts on a cap she puts on boys' clothing. She's 12, so it's easier to kind of just look like, you know, just a little boy instead of a girl. Mm. And she gets into the stadium and she gets caught and she had to sign a promise, a contract that she would never enter the stadium again. But she does not keep that promise. 
At the very next game in her hometown, she infiltrates again as a boy. And then as social media kind of takes off as she gets older, she gets becomes a teen, she now has to start strapping down her breasts. She cuts off pieces of her hair, makes a beard and a mustache. And she goes into almost like superhero transformation to be a male fan going to an Iran match. And she wants to now try to enter Azadi Stadium. There's like three checkpoints where the guards search you. She has a sock on her pants. Um, She says that you cannot get scared because they can feel your heart beating when they put their hands over your chest to make sure you're a man. When she finally gets in, she... At that point, Instagram Live was worldwide, and she Instagram Lives herself. Wow. Cheering, screaming, crazy. And sometimes she'll, like, throw her voice so you can hear her as a man and then hear her as a girl. And it's a irreverent middle finger to the regime. Like, you might think, I can't enter here, but I can do whatever I want. You cannot block me from what I love. But hold on, because after Zainab goes on IG Live, the the most modern, truly one of the most modern forms of protest I can imagine, what happens to her? What are the consequences for someone who does something like that? Yeah, so at first, you know, they can't quite figure out who she is. When she gets back home, she's showing all of her classmates, like, what she's doing. And all these girls start getting more and more excited about cross-dressing and infiltrating the stadium. So you see it start spreading throughout the country. So she starts filming people saying, we want girls there. Like, we want our girls to be in the stadiums. Like, they want to come, you know? And so she starts posting these in addition to her, like, her form of drag and her, like, screaming and cheering and singing in the stands of Azadi. And... The regime starts finding out who she is. They find out who her friends are. And because she lives in a remote city, her friends um, who live in the main city are able to text her as they are being arrested. Zainab gets word that they're coming for her next, that they were tracking her on social media. She turns off her phone. And in the middle of the night, she boards a plane and flies to, to Turkey. To this day... She has been living as an exile there. Mm. She has never been able to return. Like when she first gets to Turkey, she's only 22 years old. And by the time I'm with her in Turkey, she's 24 years old. I asked her, how do you have any love for this game? And she said to me, in soccer, there is always hope. Your team can have no chance to win. But if your team is united, you can beat the stronger team. And so it's this like love of the impossible odds and of winning against impossible odds that has kept the love of soccer in her alive to this day. Well, Shima, at the very end here, I am curious, like when do you think the protest movement will end or resolve? What what are they looking for? When will they be able to rest as we get you know, news, headlines that I'm sure um, are are haunting given the history of this country about what the morality police may or may not be doing, whether or not they are being disbanded or not. What what does, Zainab, what are the women that you talk to, what do they want? 
they don't want any more dictators in their country. They want to be represented in the government and they need a new leader. They literally need a Nelson Mandela moment. The regime itself has to change. I mean, they have to be forced out. There has to be a new leadership, a new kind of government set into place. And that is very difficult to do, as we see in any country going through any kind of revolution. And all across the globe, there's so many of us Iranians that are totally isolated, who are all forced out. There's this incredible global diaspora And all of us just accepted that we would never go back. I knew because I'm a journalist, I can never go to Iran. And the fact that I never even questioned that, I never even thought, oh, that could just change or this could change in my lifetime or that's maybe effed up that I can't go to the place where my parents were from was my lack of imagination toward this Iranian future. Mm. If anywhere in the country there has been a preservation of the imagination of what is possible. It is in the Iranian women that have resisted year after year, decade after decade. And I hope that they can now, having gone through all of this, I think they have the greatest wisdom in which to lead the country into a direction where people are happy again on the streets, not just at the soccer game. Yeah, yeah. Shima Oliyai, thank you for telling us their story. Thank you guys so much. For more coverage on the fight for women's rights in Iran as told through the lens of soccer, you can go listen to the four-part 30 for 30 series, Pink Card. Out right now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. And I'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.